The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Longroom Hub online. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Hub, which is Trinity's flagship institute for research in the arts and humanities. Uh, this evening, we're very pleased to be hosting the latest event in the Global Irish Network series. And uh, the Global Irish Network is coordinated by the Keonocton Institute at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana, it connects the universities of Liverpool, Oxford, NUIG, uh, Queens in Belfast, Edinburgh, the Sorbonne, and Trinity College Dublin. So my warmest greetings before we start to all of our colleagues joining us from those institutions. And of course, this evening, we are going to be talking about institutions. Um, the Global Irish Network, in partnering with Trinity and the Trinity Long Room Hub, has given us an opportunity to join an important ongoing conversation about universities and empire. Now, those of you who uh, attended the Torch event in Oxford on decolonizing Irish history a couple of weeks ago and many other related events will know that we're continuing a broader discussion. Uh, we're focusing this evening on how third level and related educational Irish institutions should acknowledge their imperial and colonial histories and asking how we should address current institutional practices in this context, from architecture and investments right through to pedagogy and the curriculum. There are obviously uh, many questions to be asked about this topic. Do we know enough for a start about Ireland and its imperial inheritances? Uh, for those of us, including myself, working in Irish studies, a lot of effort over the years has gone into debating Ireland's post-colonial status, but considerably less perhaps into documenting the history of Ireland's involvement in empire. Good work, of course, has been done on this topic with recent contributions, including Dan Roberts and Jonathan Wright's Ireland's Imperial Connections uh, and forthcoming studies such as uh, Shamima Akhtar's Exhibiting Irishness, Empire and Identity beginning to move things forward. If we do know enough, is it sufficient simply to be sensitive to this history? Or do we need to take steps to change things, particularly as Irish universities rightly aspire to a global voice? At a general level on this issue, as you know, calls have been made for complete repatriation of artifacts or the renaming of buildings, right through to decolonizing the curriculum and this is a process that my own discipline of English, which of course is implicitly linked to an imperial civilizing mission is still, I think, unraveled in. Uh, I should note at this point before we begin the, the welcome announcement just today from our own provost that Trinity is launching a new undergraduate elective module in black studies, which will be an extension of its inclusive curriculum project. So again, things are moving. But we want to address these questions and more. 
this evening. Uh, we won't always, I think, go about this the right way. And this evening's event is a case in point, perhaps. I'm very grateful uh, to those people who addressed the lack of diversity on this panel as it was originally constituted uh, on social media. Thank you for those interventions. Uh, and my thanks and a very warm welcome to Dr. Hussein Omar, who's graciously agreed to join our panel this evening. Uh, and Hussein is going to speak first. So I'm going to introduce him and the rest of our speakers uh, in the order that you will hear from them. Uh, Hussein Omar is Assistant Professor in Modern Global History at UCD. Uh, he researches anti-colonial political ideas in the Arabophone world, and he's author of The Rule of Strangers, Empire, Islam, and the Invention of Politics in Egypt, 1867 to 1922. That's forthcoming from OUP. He was also co-author of an open letter on ethics and empire, which was uh, collaborated, uh, which was put together by Oxford academics in 2017. And he's also a contributor to the Higher Education Policy, Policy Institute report on decolonizing the curriculum uh, from July, 2020. Uh, uh, Hussein, we look forward to hearing from you. Our second speaker is Kieran O'Neill, and it was really conversations with Kieran earlier this summer uh, that put the idea of this particular topic into the hands of the Trinity Longroom Hub. So I want to thank Kieran for that. Kieran is Usher Assistant Professor in 19th Century History here at Trinity. He's also Deputy Director of the Trinity Longroom Hub. Uh, Kieran is a co-founder of Trinity's very successful MPhil in public history and cultural heritage. He's also with Fanula O'Kane Crimmins, editor of the forthcoming book, Ireland, Slavery and the Caribbean Interdisciplinary Perspectives. That's forthcoming in, in 2021. And Kieran's new research project with uh, Carly Kyo is focused on Irish, British and Canadian links to the Eastern Caribbean. We're then going to hear from Dr. Donal Hassett, who lectures in the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultures at University College Cork. Uh, Donal teaches on topics relating to the history, politics and societies of France and the Francophone world. His doctorate was on the legacies of the Great War in colonial Algeria, and he continues to research the history of the French Empire. Uh, his first monograph, Mobilizing Memory, the Great War and the Language of politics in colonial Algeria was published by OUP Press, OUP in uh, 2019. Donald, you're very welcome. It's good to have you with us. And our final speaker is Fanula O'Kane Crimmins, who's professor in architecture at uh, University College Dublin. Fanula's research interests are, as many of you will know, in landscape and architectural history and theory. Uh, she's also an expert in Irish social history. And Fanula, with Kieran O'Neill, as I've already mentioned, is editor of the forthcoming book, Ireland, Slavery and the Caribbean. Uh, she is also with Ellen, uh, Ellen Rowley, the author of Making Belfield, Space and Place at UCD, just published this year. Fanula, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. The format for this evening is that each of the speakers has nine minutes, not quite enough, but they'll do their best. And then we're going to open up this session to questions from you, the audience. Uh, we will, um, I hope, be able to uh, have enough time, we go on a little bit towards 8.15, to get as many questions and comments from you in as possible. 
please use the Q&A screen, which we'll open at the bottom of the Zoom panel. Or again, if you're following us on the live Facebook stream, you'll see that the, uh, the panel is open for questions. Uh, I also want to salute those joining us on our US platform, Irish Central. Uh, and to all of you, a reminder that you can, of course, tweet uh, the uh, um, uh, highlights of this session at TLR Hub and using the hashtag Hub Matters. So for now, let's start the conversation on Irish universities and imperial legacies. And I will hand over to Hussein. Hussein. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak. It is a great privilege, and more on that later, to be part of this very important conversation. In a few minutes, my co-panelists will speak to you about the entanglements of our various universities with the history of imperialism. But before we hear about the past of seemingly bygone plunder plantations and peoples enslaved, I'd like to reflect on how the legacies of empire endure in the present. For those of us who are not from Ireland, but have immigrated here, this island's Republic, Republican history holds something of a mythical place for obvious reasons in our anti-colonial imaginations, just as it did for many of the historical figures we study. But arriving here, one is struck by the extent to which that anti-colonial inheritance seems to have had little effect on shifting the dialogue on diversity, race, and indeed the coloniality of the curriculum. This was surprising to me. As someone who had long admired and studied the life and thought of somebody like the Irish socialist playwright, Frederick Ryan, a remarkably versatile cosmopolitan individual who gave much of his life to the cause of the Egyptian, the Irish, and various other anti-colonial struggles, I began to wonder why it is that our own conceptions of the global were narrower, less cosmopolitan, and dare I say it, more parochial than those actually engaged in overturning imperial structures. Why was the global turn in the humanities so so much less diverse and less multilingual than the work of activists that died over a hundred years ago. It strikes me that as we collectively emphasize the boldness and indeed the newness of the questions that we are debating here today, we mustn't erase the contributions of our anti-colonial predecessors. Many of these historical figures were thinking incisively and deeply about representation and race, diversity, as well as divestment, even if they didn't use those words exactly. Coming to Dublin two years ago, it seemed to me that uh, the, this putatively anti-colonial country suffered from the same unbearable whiteness of being and indeed seeing as its aggressively still imperial neighbor. The curriculum is just as white as are the faculty members, and more often than not, talk of a quote-unquote global Ireland refers to engagement with, with the Anglophone white settler colonies and occasionally India, if we are lucky. Indeed, it has been suggested to me, and others are better qualified to comment on this, that Ireland's anti-colonial inheritance has been deployed not to open up, but rather to stifle uncomfortable questions. Irish universities have begun to address these, the seeming blindness to empire and the legacies of imperialism. Much of that has happened under the label of decolonizing or globalizing. I myself was appointed as a lecturer in modern global history, but as encouraging as this seems to be, not all that is global is in fact anti-colonial, and not all that is anti-colonial is epistemologically decolonial. Much of what passes under these labels doesn't unsettle racial hierarchy, surely empire's most enduring legacy, but instead reinforces them. 
In the time that remains, I will talk about three different issues that I see as being pertinent to this conversation. Syllabus reform, student and staff diversity, and finally, the dangers of deploying the emergent languages of decolonization to stifle debate. Despite claims to the contrary, there are student movements that are demanding a decolonization of the curriculum. While they may not have the organizational capacities of why is my curriculum white or the media savvy of roads must fall, there is a significant student movement in Ireland that seeks to critique the Eurocentricity of the curriculum. This year, Dr. Jennifer Keating and I introduced the first year module called Radicals and Revolutionaries. While this was the first attempt to bring extra European history right into the center of the curriculum, we were wary that extra European history isn't and wasn't sufficiently intellectually coherent and organizing principle. So the aim of the module and a new BA in Global Studies uh, that I'm currently working on designing is to over what we see as imperial epistemologies. Our aim is to communicate that the global properly conceived isn't just a euphemism for far off and exotic places outside of Western Europe and North America. It isn't a catalog of curiosities or curios from countries we don't quite understand. We insist that the global can and ought to have a rigorous set of methodological and indeed political commitments. The first of these is to take aim at a methodological nationalism. The objective of of a global methodology, methodology shouldn't be to should be to question the, pre, the presumed naturalness of the nation state, to ask how it came to appear as such, and to unmask the inherent violence of its formation by refusing to give it respectable academic cover. The second object of our critique is Eurocentricity, i.e. the tendency to deploy the category of Europe as, as a category of analysis, but which persistently fails to historicize it as emergent subject in its own right. As exciting as this might sound, we still have a long way to go. Unlike English at UCD, where world rich world literature is compulsory, extra European history remains in the school of history just that, an extra in more ways than one. For example, we were at first told that if we wanted to run such a module, we would have to do it as an extra on top of the usual workload. Although uh, we were able to push back against this, it, it highlights some of the ways um, in which, uh, you know, me as the only person of color, I was being asked to choose between having any uh, African or Asian history in the first year uh, for students or preserving my sanity. This brings me to my second point. To the best of my knowledge, I'm the only person of color to currently be permanently employed um, in the Republic of Ireland in a history department. The statistics aren't good, particularly as our student bodies are infinitely more diverse than we are. And it seems that the ethnic composition gets whiter the further one moves up the academic hierarchy. This disparity, however, has produced no shortage of research projects prefixed as global, almost compulsory at this point, although what is smuggled beneath that label is anything but. It remains frighteningly Anglophone. Those global projects that show magnanimity to Afro-Asian by including their perspectives, often rely on translators and fixers precariously employed to provide local color, thereby reducing them to native informants at the best. Perhaps as scholars, we oughtn't, we oughtn't ventriloquize on behalf of people we think are unable to speak for themselves, but rather instead clear a path for them to be heard in their own words. Finally, I want to speak about the dangers of reducing the decolonial or the decolonizing to a metaphor. The attempt to rescind UCD's commitment to free speech earlier this year was one example of this. Claiming the mantle of the global, a committee of 
mostly scientists, decided that UCD should revise its commitment to free speech because free speech was allegedly a Eurocentric concept that was not shared by African and Asian traditions. I think that was the word they used the world over. This was a cynical attempt to adopt a post-colonial critique of Eurocentricity in order to placate the university's partner authoritarian governments. Not least of all, it betrayed a deep ignorance on the his long histories of struggle for freedom of speech uh, outside of Europe. But also in casting free speech as the singular achievement of Europeans wound up propagating a, Euro a Eurocentricity far more noxious than that which it allegedly criticized. Let me finish um, by saying uh, that I believe in order for this conversation to be generative, it must also be really uncomfortable. I was invited to speak on this panel, as Eva's already said, after it was rightly criticized for its composition. I myself asked, uh, as did others, who gets to speak for the universal, in this case Ireland, and why? Why is it that scholars of color are only called upon to speak about their particulars, but not about questions to be deemed universal? Who could or should speak about to and from Ireland? I pointed out that white scholars in Africa and Asia often win the right to speak about these places after brief visits, but the courtesy is rarely extended to those of us of color who live for many years in Europe. So, if it was the case that I was invited this time because of the color of my skin, I look forward to a future when I'm invited to speak for the content of my scholarship. For me, it is only then, and not just when the statues fall, although I do hope they fall, that the ghosts of empire will finally be exercised. Thanks. Okay, uh, thanks, that was wonderful. Uh, so I'm gonna use my nine minutes to talk about just three aspects of this issue and in relation to, um, to uh, Trinity College Dublin where I work and where I teach. So firstly, I wanna talk about the history of Trinity as an imperial actor itself. So I wanna think about Trinity as a tool of empire. Secondly, I wanna talk about Trinity's intellectual legacy. So the ideas of empire to which we have contributed over many centuries. Uh, lastly, I want to talk about what I call the stuff of empire that has descended to us uh, because of those centuries, so Trinity's imperial collections. Um, Trinity is a colonial institution. Its foundation is part of the colonization of Ireland in the 16th century, and not only that, it's funded and maintained for much of its history from the profits of land confiscated from Irish people throughout the 17th century. By 1900, this land was worth about £40,000, in rental income from about 180,000 acres that were in our uh, property. With that revenue and with a lot of grants from the Irish Parliament and the Exchequer, Trinity evolved to become a net contributor to the wider British Empire and to the colonization of peoples other than Irish people. Throughout the 18th and 19th century, Trinity had a very consistent record in providing doctors, scholars, civil servants, engineers, and scientists that contributed to the broader colonial project. Not only that, but from the mid 18th century through to the 20th, we can say that the curriculum at Trinity College Dublin was progressively geared towards the service of empire intellectually with the creation of professors of Arabic and Sanskrit in the mid 19th century, servicing the Indian civil service examinations, for example. So more than any other Irish university, arguably empire created Trinity and the profits of imperialism maintained it, all the while it produced graduates and fellows that furthered European imperialism. 
But what about the ideas of empire? What about Trinity as a producer of ideas that contribute? I want to think about just two Trinity thinkers here. The first is the Bishop of Cloyne, uh, George Berkeley. Here he is, uh, who dies 1753. Uh, most famous because he's a stellar philosopher and one of the most prominent scholars ever produced by the university. We named our signature brutalist library on campus after Berkeley in the 1960s, a reference, I suppose, to the fact that he was librarian when the Long Room Library was built in the early 18th century. But Berkeley was also a slave owner. He bought four people and he renamed them, uh, Philip, Anthony, Agnes, and Edward Berkeley. On his departure from America, he sold those slaves on and donated their profits to Yale. Just as bad, he adopted and argued a philosophical position that argued that baptism was compatible with continued slavery, helping to deny many more generations uh, of a potential route out of their enslavement. Trinity College Dublin prefers, of course, to speak about other figures, more robustly anti-imperial imperial campaigners. So politicians and statesmen, for example, like Edmund Burke, who dies in 1797. This is a photograph of a statue of Burke, which of course is outside um, the front gate in Trinity uh, from 1870. Burke's consistent position was anti-slavery and he was an important public voice against unfettered and corrupt expansion of the empire at the margins. Though he was somewhat selective about the evils that he exposed, he was much more interested in corruption in India, for example, than in the Caribbean where many of his friends had plantations which funded their careers. Nevertheless, he's one of the figures to whom we can point with some degree of pride, just as we can to the many anti-apartheid voices of the later 20th century, like the exiled Kadar Asmal, who taught in the Department of Law for 27 years. It's easy for us to try and balance each Berkeley with a Burke, but this, I would argue, is a sort of sophistry, it's a lie. We can't simply advance a balance sheet approach to our thinkers and only shout about those whose politics age well. Lastly, I wanna talk about Trinity's collections or the stuff of empire. It's worth mentioning the many imperial legacies that we have in our collections dotted all across the campus. The library has plenty of imperial artifacts in its possession. 2000 year old Sumeriac tablets, Arabic manuscripts, Persian, Syriac, Ethiopian collections of various provenance and quality. By the late 19th century, the college was is collecting extraordinary ethnographic and anatomical collections, as well as zoological botanical specimens that formed the uh, backbone of our teaching collections into the modern era. These include, of course, human specimens, skulls and bones, all collected in fairly problematic ways in places as diverse as Torres Strait Islands in the Pacific and the Aran Islands much closer to home by people like William Wilde and later Alfred Court Haddon, who you can see uh, holding onto one of his skulls here in his official portrait uh, somewhat creepily. Haddon oversaw parallel research projects in the Pacific and the Aran Islands simultaneously in the late 1880s and early 1890s, as can be seen in this last image, which I'll leave up for a while because it really is extraordinary, taken in Inish Boffin in 1893, showing a Trinity research team collecting data from live subjects using the latest craniometer technology recommended to them by Francis Galton in London, the founder of eugenics. The 19th century is an era of unregulated frontier science and this university, Trinity College Dublin, is every bit as cavalier in its unthinking imperialism as were other academic institutions 
in the UK and elsewhere. As a result, we have extensive collections that are deeply imperial or colonial in origin, but no coherent attempt across college to account for them other than as unused teaching props. So in summary, Trinity has lots of work to do to reckon with its imperial legacies in anything like a coherent way. I'm sure that we can do that effectively as a critical community of uh, scholars and students. And I think the best way to do it will be in conversation with our students, but also with the world outside the walls. The profile of students at Trinity is, like Hussein said, it's changing all the time in ways that our faculty will struggle to reflect. We already recruit large numbers of international students, some of them from South Asian, Asian backgrounds. Many of our incoming first and second years have what Olivet Dotele would call dual heritage connections to Africa. I think these students will likely come to us with probing questions about Irish institutions and empire. And I think these questions are a welcome challenge to us that we should be anticipating. We are only just scratching the surface of Trinity's connections to empire. Thanks. Thank you, Karen. Uh, so I want to begin by using the story of University College Cork's famous or infamous statue of Queen Victoria to interrogate the way universities, at least outside of Dublin, have related to their imperial past. Queen's College Cork, founded in 1845, was part of a broader reform in the education sector across the then United Kingdom that sought to integrate emerging middle classes into the political and cultural elites of the imperial polity. In the south of Ireland, this effort was particularly focused on the Catholic middle classes who had recently been emancipated from the exclusionary legal framework that had governed uh, British colonial rule in Ireland. The fact that significant resources were ploughed into the construction of UCC at the height of the famine, with much of the physical labour done by those who had fled the devastated countryside around Cork, shows how class shaped the colonial experiences of Irish subjects in the 19th century. When the Statue of Victoria was mounted on the gable end of the university's quad in 1849, under the watchful eye of the Queen herself, it was clear that the institution was conceived of as another educational outpost of Britain's empire. The university over which the statue presided would furnish a steady stream of Irish graduates to man the various sectors of the British colonial administration in India, Africa and elsewhere. The report of the Royal Commission to inquire into the progress and condition of the Queen's College, published in 1859, lauded the fact that Cork students had secured, quote, the most important appointments that are disposed of in these countries, the writerships in the East India Company. That the entry of its graduates into the colonial service was perceived as a marker of the institution's success was no surprise. The whole educational mission of universities in Ireland, Britain, and across the so-called Global North in this period was both shaped by and constitutive of the broader cultural and economic project of colonial rule. What makes the case of Ireland particularly interesting is, of course, the university were sites of contested coloniality, whereas in the case of UCC, Irish nationalism infused with anti-colonial rhetoric coexisted with and sometimes even complemented participation in colonialism overseas. The university would, of course, play an important role during the revolutionary period as a hotbed of nationalism. The tragic drama of the slow agonizing death of one of its graduates, Terence McSweeney, on hunger strike resonated around the world and was seized upon by anti-colonial activists in contexts as diverse as French Algeria and British India. 
During the revolution, and especially in its aftermath, UCC was reimagined as an anti-colonial space that challenged British hegemony on this island. Nevertheless, the research of Sean William Gannon has shown that for all its commitment to the emancipation of Ireland, UCC, like other institutions in the Irish Free State, continue to promote the British colonial service as a desirable employment option for its graduates long after independence. In the context of increasing Republican activism on campus in the 1930s, UCC authorities removed the statue of Queen Victoria, replacing it with a sculpture of St. Finbar, the scholarly patron saint of Cork, who represented the university's increasingly Catholic ethos. Course Catholicism was completely compatible with continued colonial practices overseas, and Cork graduates would play an important role in expanding the church's spiritual empire through the missions in Africa and Asia. Following Victoria's removal from her perch, she was kept in a storeroom before being ceremoniously buried in the president's garden on campus, a fitting metaphor for the hidden histories of empire permeating the institution. In 1995, for the university's 150th anniversary, and as part of the reconsideration of Ireland's own colonial past connected to the peace process, Victoria was disinterred and put on display in the staff common room, where she remains to this day. The statue was a centerpiece of the visit of her descendant, Queen Elizabeth II, to Cork, where its preservation was touted by UCC historian and former politician John A. Murphy as proof that the Irish, or perhaps more accurately, the people of Cork, were, quote, too civilized to break it up, with the choice of term civilized here carrying its own colonial connotations. This final chapter of the statue's story underlines the reductionist view taken of imperial heritage in Ireland purely as a green-orange or Irish-British issue in a way that obscures Ireland's complex place in the interconnected hierarchies of empire. Discussions of the legacy of empire in Ireland should go beyond uh, both the boilerplate nationalism that obscures Ireland's own complicities in the colonial project and a sanitizing discourse of reconciliation that misguidedly believes that ignoring the exploitation and atrocities of the British empire is somehow a prerequisite for building bridges with unionists and with Britain. The role of universities should be to foster nuance in our analysis of these complex pasts. So in an effort to move beyond this British-Irish paradigm, I want to draw attention to another, much less well-known chapter from UCC's past that can inspire our contemporary efforts to rethink the legacies of empire in our universities. While UCC is happy to trumpet the achievements of such illustrious alumni as the Taoiseach Michal Martin, it rarely celebrates the career of one of its most culturally significant and more politically relevant, I would argue, graduates, the Cameroonian intellectual um, Belna Nusokika Fonlon. So Fonlon was educated in part by those Irish agents of both empire and anti-colonial thought in Africa, Catholic missionaries, and developed a lifelong friendship with an Irish priest, a Father Burke. Fonlon won a scholarship to travel to France and then to Cork for university studies. He went on to secure qualifications in classics and literature from Cork, Oxford and the Sorbonne, before returning to Cameroon to play a crucial role in the development of the country's education system. Abia, the journal founded by Fonlon, became a key forum for debates around the decolonization of education in Africa, the creation of an African and a black literary canon, and the broader critique of European colonial epistemologies. Fonlon was doing the kind of work we are talking about today in the much more difficult environment of 1950s Cork and post-independence Cameroon without the privileges many of us enjoy. He shows us that discussions of the imperial legacies are not some fad that emerged from the imagined culture wars of the global north, but rather are rooted in a longer history of educational innovation in the global south. 
rather than simply look at some of the admittedly good work that has been happening in places like Glasgow and Bristol in recent years, we should also engage the decades of activism and academic work on these questions in places like Dar es Salaam, Dakar, Cape Town and Delhi. But the work of post-colonial scholars has increasingly found its way into curricula in universities in Ireland, and the predominance of old Eurocentric and male-dominated canons is fading, but there are clear limits to this grappling with imperial legacies in our teaching. In the humanities and social sciences, the normative status of European cultural and academic production seems largely intact. While original works of theory and cultural production by people of colour and scholars from the Global South are present, their academic research is much less integrated into curricula. In the hard sciences, the acknowledgement of the colonial origins of modern scientific systems of knowledge is not yet fully embedded in university teaching. I recently discovered that in Algeria, the country my research focuses on, all medical students specifically learn about how colonialism shaped modern medical practices and how that intersects with contemporary inequalities in medical outcomes. This is of course featured to some extent in the history of medicine, but is not to my knowledge an integral part of the training of contemporary doctors. A similar argument can be made in, the field, in fields such as botany, geography, geology and engineering, which were all shaped by uh, and constitutive of European colonialism overseas. So to conclude, Ireland's own complex colonial past offers a real opportunity here. The cultural pressures that exist in former imperial metropoles are less present here, and there is real space for an open and honest discussion, not only about our universities' histories of imperialism, but also about their role in upholding, perpetuating, and hopefully tackling inequalities at home and abroad. We must be vigilant against efforts to co-opt these discussions to facilitate the moves towards innocence of educational institutions. If we are serious about tackling imperial legacies, we must think not only about the physical and symbolic spaces in which we teach and research, but also the epistemologies that underpin our work in both the social and hard sciences, the relationships we have with institutions and corporations overseas, and the forms of racial exclusion that define who gets to teach and who gets to talk about these questions in Ireland today, it forms of exclusion that we are all complicit. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. I want to talk about Belfield um, and the making of it um, due to a book that I've recently edited with Ellen Rowley, which is called Making Belfield the Place and Space of UCD. Um, it's primarily, of course, to celebrate the modernist history of the Belfield campus. But as I started to research it, um, and particularly focused on a small note, which I found in one of the archives, um, well, UCD archives, which said, which name for the entire site or campus, Donnybrooks, Delorgan, Belfield, or Belgrove? And this kind of small note um, started me thinking as to how Belfield had actually got its name. Now, it's not an unusual name, um, but, um, it, it, it is um, what became the identity of, of UCD. So I'm just going to um, analyze this um, landscape and the contribution it has made to Belfield's identity. So to explore the naming of Belfield and in the widest sense, the landscapes that have contributed to it, and um, most of the landscapes are villa landscapes, which when translated um, to the Americas become plantation landscapes. Um, and comparing this landscape of Belfield um, with the eventual kind of uncovering of its sister landscape, Belfield in Jamaica, 
um, uncovers a reciprocal transnational landscape history of Ireland and Jamaica, one where the distant fields, crops and labour forces of the Caribbean become part of the resolved landscape design of Dublin suburbia. And this is, of course, an economic history as much of a, as a spatial history, acknowledging that major architectural and landscape developments seldom, if ever, happen without substantial funding, and that a final design is not easily separated from its financial sources, however overlaid with stylistic or aesthetic rationales. So architecture is part of this story, but only as the final layer of a long and deep transatlantic palimpsest of land acquisition, property law, and European colonization. I, I think I specifically want to highlight essentially the contribution that other disciplines um, beyond the humanities have made to the acceptance and dissemination of imperialism, particularly engineering and architecture, which essentially build imperialism and imprint it into the landscapes in which it was found. But what, what's evident here is also that the reciprocal happens as well, that once these younger sons um, predominantly younger sons go out to the Caribbean um, and start developing their villa landscapes there, which they model on home. And then they come back later as absentees that they bring ideas from the Caribbean and, and controlling mechanisms, spatial mechanisms back um, into Ireland. Um, and it's also a story of the ground that, that is not just statues um, where we can find the legacy of imperialism. It's not point objects that we can fixate upon and move or, or change or manipulate in various ways, is, it's actually everywhere. It's a ground on which we walk. We benefit from the um, wonderfully salubrious suburban environments of South County Dublin, in part because we've had this steady stream of money um, coming um, on, for many years unquestionably back to Europe um, in, in the form of, of a kind of asset transfer of all that labour, which built the environments um, we live in today. Um, and I think this is very important, of course, for, for the disciplines that tend to be less historically minded or less theoretically minded um, and who don't have large numbers of modules um, that question the history of the discipline and um, that is important for people who make space and who build buildings and um, that they think about the legacy and that they think about that connection also to, to money and streams of income, which often people like to conceal or manipulate or, or talk about global streams as if they're, they're um, almost relentlessly positive. Um, so uh, if I could just move on to the next image, um, I just want to show a map, um, which when I was, um, I worked predominantly in the 18th century, so, so I was somewhat, um, uh, perplexed initially as, as to how I would write into, into mod, uh, modernist history. And this was the map that I found actually in the Library of Congress, which is um, a sail map. Um, and here, just here on, on the right, for those of you who are eagle-eyed, is Belfield. And these plantations were owned by the Latouche um, Lynch families in Dublin. And we know also from that wonderful website, uh, University College London's legacy of British slave ownership, that the two families, Latouche and Lynch, um, essentially received compensation for their slaves um, in, in, in the 19th century. So 
So what's also clear is that Belfield is one of the oldest pieces of land in this history, um, but it also starts to remove itself more from the maps as they become overlaid in this case, of course, with German in, in Königsberg and Cape Clear. But what fascinated me completely about this map was, was just the surrounding geography. Um, and maybe I should go back a little bit to talk about um, how the Latouches, um, Belfield House in Belfield, um, one of the 11 villas with, from which Belfield campus is composed. Belfield House was originally built, um, we think by Ambrose Moore, um, and then it was purchased or rented by the Latouche family. So they didn't build Belfield, but they lived in it while Belfield and when Belfield acquired its name, they essentially gave it to them. And the coincidence is that they had this plantation. Belfield was originally part of Cunningsburg Plantation. There are other complex maps in the Jamaica archive which detail the kind of land swaps between the Latouches and the Lynches and the Easts who were very wealthy planters in Jamaica that, that organized this section of Jamaica into their image. And so, um, this map is, is ringed also as a kind of coincidental clue that Montrose is at one side and Belfield is at, is at the other. So those of you who know the geography of South County Dublin, this was almost a coincidence too much. Um, yeah, and even though there are kind of unlocked questions within this story, which, which are to do with the financial complexity, which is built into kind of transatlantic income streams and that, that natural instinct of most people not to tell the truth about where their money comes from and to overlay it with dowries and mortgages and a, a very com kind of complex um, capitalist ways of concealing where the money is coming from and what we're actually using it for. So, and then of course there are other places around this, there's Not Patrick, there's Leinster, there's Pembroke, all of these are redolent of, of Dublin 4 and of its translation in spatial terms from Ireland to Jamaica um, and then back again in terms of income streams and of making these beautiful villa landscapes um, which, which are of course the most extreme opposite environment to what is actually going on in the sugar works here with the overseers um, and the, the, the enslaved workers housing and just the, the sheer um, degradation of, of a truly capitalist industrial scale um, exploitation of Jamaica's um, land, but it translates then back into Europe. So um, that, that is the story that I essentially uncovered um, as part of UCD's modernist um, history. And it is, of course, a little tangential um, to the history of UCD's modernist campus. And nor is it definitively pro proven that Peter Diggis Latouche thought of Jamaica when re renaming his new residence in Dublin's most fashionable suburb. And um, yet the coincidence of this financial alliance with the geographical contiguity of Belfield, Montrose, Clonmel, Leinster and Mount Patrick plantations half a world away is too great not to inspire consideration of UCD's name um, and what it might represent. Um, it is interesting that the name Belfield carries echoes of one of Europe's most profitable enterprises, the transatlantic market in tropical produce that was engendered and supported by matrilineal chattel slavery. Um, and nor is it possible either to dismiss this as a legacy of Ireland's own sectarian history and to interpret it as a Protestant or Anglo-Irish Anglo history, um, as Irish Caribbean planters um, came from all sides of the religious spectrum and Catholic identity, which was problematic in Ireland, was not really at all a problem in most of the Caribbean. Um, so 
UCD, um, to conclude, was founded on the 3rd of November 1854, when some 20 students met to hear John Henry Newman announce the first term of lectures um, at the Catholic University of Ireland. Um, and this, of course, substantially postdates the emancipation of enslaved workers across the British Empire in 1836. UCD has known, no known historic funding stream that originated in the slave economy. And unlike many other universities on both sides of the Atlantic, it does not have to come to terms, arguably, with the same degree of profoundly negative and exploitative history. Yet in a more globalized world, and as Ireland's global university, as it likes to frame itself, it is educational to think about older globalized enterprises and their legacies. And although this is not a positive history, it is one that we owe our national and international student body, staff, and partner national and international institutions. And while this was this um, essay originally was concerned with Belfield House and the Diggis Latouche Lynch families in, in a very kind of micro history way within a Belfield 50 history, and um, it's more concerned with that larger transnational history that give and take um, across the Atlantic or between different parts of, um, of the British Empire, um, that a sustained focus on these two designed landscapes, Belfield. Um, villa in Dublin and Belfield Plantation in Jamaica, owned by the same Irish families but an ocean apart enables. Um, many polite suburban villas in Europe, which we all enjoy today, were funded by the workings of plantation landscapes in the Caribbean and further afield, and design patterns from one side of the world interpenetrated those on the other and benefited from those on the other. So these underlying patterns of design, complicity and resonance that connect Belfield, the two Belfields, can be partially exposed by collapsing an empire into two connected estates. And it would be far more comfortable, of course, and traditional, certainly within the history of, architect history of architecture or the history um, of engineering, um, to write a history of such landscapes separately and to frame them within national rather than transnational histories. But that this really can no longer with any conscience be done. And I think that can, of course, be extended into disciplinary um, discussions and interdisciplinary discussions and the necessity um, for communication between disciplines um, and also between the humanities and the sciences so that the sciences consider um, maybe more why they do things and how um, projects are made and, and for what purpose. Um, and if you unpick these kind of histories, it becomes much clearer, I think, to student engineers and architectures what their role is in making these environments and, and I suppose their, um, their um, complicity in making these environments. Um, so there are many Belfields strewn across the world, um, but the name seems particularly unsuited to fields of sugar worked by hundreds of enslaved workers. Um, and this brief um, expose on Belfield's origins had set out to document some of those connections to strange and distant other fields from this perspective, not from the Jamaican perspective, um, that are not at all beautiful, but very much designed. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that, Fanula, and all the speakers uh, at the beginning. Hussein said that we must necessarily have uncomfortable conversations on this topic, and I think all of you have touched on some uncomfortable uh, truths. None of our respective institutions have clean hands on this one, very obviously. Uh, but I can see from the questions coming in that this has provoked 
um, uh, interest from a wide range of angles. So I, I want to go directly to the questions and I hope we can come back to some of the points that you've addressed in these really very, very rich um, uh, contributions that we've had. But I want to start with a question that's come in from uh, Johnny Johnson uh, here in Trinity. And John, Johnny, who works in uh, um, the teaching wing, let's say, of, of Trinity, has asked what I think is a very good question. I'm going to put it to you, Hussein, because you talked about your own work in designing uh, a curriculum um, which does address this topic. Um, but uh, Johnny says, all of you who come from a professional background of history or a history adjacent uh, discipline, um, I've, I've changed, I've gone, I think he's got two questions in, but the question I wanted to go to from him was about how do we elevate the discussion uh, about imperial legacies, about colonialism from the undergraduate syllabus level and into the research environment which some people would regard as being more meaningful perhaps in our universities. Is there a risk of disappearing it when we uh, introduce, for example, uh, modules at undergraduate level, rather than taking it on in a more wholesale way in our research work and, and integrate it into what we do at that level? And he's saying, I just want to put that to you because you started off talking about the, the work you've been doing and the difficulties you've had uh, in putting even an undergraduate module together on this. Thank you. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, part of the problem, and uh, Donal has touched on this uh, in various fora uh, before today, and I am in agreement, part of the problem is um, most, I mean, many of our uh, uh, research students don't have um, the requisite languages in, uh, that, that are required to do the kind of high level research um, that we require. So, so I don't see uh, that the undergraduate uh, is a lesser level. It's just one of the ways in which we begin the process, a long-term process of, of introducing um, some of these ideas. And some of that will necessarily require rigorous uh, language teaching. But as Donal has also pointed out, uh, as our students uh, uh, are increasingly more diverse, we we should we should be conscious of of bringing in uh, students from diverse backgrounds uh, who already have other kinds of languages into the conversation. I I, I see a problem with the way that um, research is uh, is is funded. Uh, if one looks at the global projects uh, that the ERC funds, for example, uh, these tend to be projects uh, led by uh, people with rather bombastic sort of claims about restoring agency to brown and black people. Uh, often those are projects uh, that are primarily conducted in English uh, in places like the UN archives. And then they bring in um, people on a kind of precarious sort of level as research assistants or, or, or postdocs. And, and, and that's, that's a really worrying um, uh, uh, development, I think. Um, and um, I, I, I mean, I think it's, it, it raises all sorts of questions about the universality of the claims that people are able to make. And I think the, the, the people who come out of more specific area studies uh, backgrounds often don't make those kind of large claims uh, that, 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 that get funded. And I, and I think we need to begin to evaluate the nature of those claims a little bit uh, differently so we can finally change the research landscape. Thanks. Good, and thank you. And, and I want to go to Donal on this point too, because of his own background and, and his teaching and research work. Um, Donal, 
Any thoughts on this problem of whether we have a hierarchy of how we address this topic? I think one issue that, that often gets overlooked, which is a really practical issue, is that you know universities talk a good game about um, working with partner institutions and with academics uh, in, in the Global South in particular. And any effort to secure funding and uh, to work with those people and particularly to actually process a payment to those scholars for their work is just incredibly complicated. And in a way, it ends up that, that people who are at least contending to do work that is kind of decolonial or, or challenging colonial logics reproduce the extractive logic of colonialism by going and getting the legitimacy or the original research of scholars based in, in Africa, for example, and then not compensating them uh, promptly or at all for their work. And, and that's something that we really need to change as a system. And I know uh, there are people working on that. I, I know I had an interesting um, conversation with our, our colleague, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan in Galway, uh, on work that he has done in the past to look at how we, we change the funding. But we need to be really careful about this idea, um, which I think Hussein uh, addressed in the beginning, of bringing in people for the sake of, of diversity without thinking of what the structural changes need to be made uh, to valorize their work um, beyond, beyond their, their kind of tokenistic um, contribution to diversity. And that's something we really need to profoundly change uh, both at on both in terms of our teaching and and the way that we do our research good and thank you and that that we've noted that i'm going to come back to you with lots of other questions donal including on language but uh, i just wanted to um to come to i'm going to amalgamate two two people's questions phoebe valomcott uh who says i'm from india and even with our similar colonial histories the lack of empathy and understanding still astounds me it's a point rather than a question but I think there's a similar grounds for a query from uh, Dr. Brendan Brown, who um, works, uh, hello, Brendan, in, in conflict resolution, both in Trinity and in Belfast. Uh, and he asks a question from the point of view of Ireland's current engagement in what he discusses, uh, which is settler colonialism uh, in Palestine. So there is a sense that Ireland's uh, um, imperial allegiances, as he's expressing, if I understand it, are not over, they're not finished. Um, but I'm going to rephrase both of these points and maybe go to you, Kieran, on this, because you talked a little bit about nationalism itself um, and, and the discourses of nationalism. Have these for a long time disguised the other competing discourses or perhaps parallel discourses of imperial engagement that we should have paid more attention to? Why is it that we don't get, in, in Phoebe's words there, more sympathy uh, for other colonized nations, given Irish historical experience? That's a huge question, Kieran. I'm throwing it at you. Because, yeah, thanks. Um, um, I'll do my best not to completely butcher my answer. But uh, I, I do think, I mean, I teach uh, Ireland and Empire uh, in Trinity, have done since I was appointed about nine years ago. And it's actually a really interesting thing, even to think about when work starts to happen on Ireland and Empire, because um, we really only start to see scholars who are Irish working on these themes in, in sort of mid 20th century at all. And they're usually from a Commonwealth perspective, usually at British universities or an Atlantic history perspective. You only really begin to see people talk about uh, Ireland and the British Empire, or Ireland and imperialism in, in the 1990s. And it's kind of at the time when uh, the troubles in the peace process are coming to, you know, one end of one cycle. And all of a sudden there's space because um, 
the previous decades are really dominated by a sort of revisionist versus nationalist debate within within sort of history there's all of a sudden space for people to start writing and thinking about this and also start teaching about it and i would say teaching of ireland and the empire is something that's even more recent than that the scholarship really started to come in the late 90s early 2000s it's at a good level now lots of people are working on this topic and that's very welcome but really we don't teach um uh, any note of our irish imperialism um at least uh, it's not evidently scattered across the secondary curriculum even in universities it's really patchy um so i, I think i think yes nationalism is, is partly to do with that I, I responding to the question about the lack of empathy for colonized peoples it's it's interesting i would say there's a lack of empathy there's an awful lot of what I, we call identification within irish popular attitudes towards the issue with colonized peoples in that there's a simple equivalent equivalency made between irish people as victims of empire victims of colonialism and other peoples who are also victims of colonialism and of course i'm not saying that identification is valid i'm just saying that's only one part of a story that's much bigger and until we're honest about the other side of the story we're not giving a complete picture or even in, in some senses confronting the kind of issues that will answer the two questions that you posed Thanks, Kieran. I'm going to stay with you for a very brief response to it's really the same question coming in from lots of people in, in different formats. Kevin O'Sullivan from, from NUIG, uh, uh, Julia, I'm sorry, Julia, I've lost your surname, Damphorn, I think it is. And I can also see Jane Allmeyer uh, um, asking very much the same question. What actions do we need to take in the Irish universities to address the legacies of empire that you've identified? But I'm going to come to the architectural question first. Uh, Kieran, because you talked about Barclay, you talked about the naming of Trinity's Library. Uh, we've seen examples of renaming um, and of, of statues falling, not only, of course, around the Rhodes discussion in Oxford, but, but right across um, institutions uh, worldwide. I'm going to ask you this first, and then I'll come to you, Fanula, on the same topic. Looking around at the environments that we work in every day in our universities, is it time for physically to make changes? Or do we simply need to be aware of, be conscious of the loaded historical baggage that comes with our architecture and statues and villas and landscapes? Kieran, I'll go to you first for a brief one on that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So Berkeley is obviously one of the, the ones that is most controversial in a Trinity context. And it's, you know, almost a question that, that forces us to think about um, how Cecil Rhodes has fared at Oxford and, and other statues have fared across Britain and so on. We haven't really seen that kind of direct action in Ireland. And I think it's partly because of this problematic relationship we have uh, with, with the empire, a lack of awareness even of the integration or, or involvement that Irish people had in the empire. Uh, so partly that, that kind of contributes to an invisibility of structures and statues that reference transatlantic slave trade for example, although there are many other imperial um, markers as well. Berkeley, I think, is a question for the college community, but also a question for, for the wider kind of community that's interested in Trinity, not just the scholars and students. Um, I don't think one person can make that decision. I think you have a critical conversation about it. If a sufficiency of people were to think that that or any other landmark uh, or statue in college should be taken down or reinterpreted, then I think we should listen to that really carefully. I don't think it's a, it's a place to make grand declarations, uh, but I will say this from a sort of personal perspective, nobody has a right to remain uh, in high regard in perpetuity. Uh, we, we change our reputations over time 
um, uh, according as new information comes to light or as according to as, as old information becomes more significant and recognized in a wider um, in a wider group. And that's the case with Berkeley. We actually knew this about Berkeley when we named our library after him in the 1960s. You know, what about now? Are, are we the same now or not? Well, watch this space on that one, I suppose. But I mean, we're, we're fitting this into a, a modern Irish history, which is more than used to renamings, uh, the removal by violent means or otherwise of statues that have the wrong associations. Um, do we need now to, to extend this process to questions of these imperial legacies? Fanula, I was so struck by your, your wonderful contribution on the pervasiveness, the, the, the ingrained quality of uh, imperial structures, simply from looking at what might be a, a representative sample of the territory around Belfield itself. Um, what you talked about as a whole environment with its links and its associations to um, Caribbean histories of slavery and empire presumably is something we, we cannot rewrite, we cannot replace, we have to live with it. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about what you would see in terms of ways to address this kind of uh, backdrop or this hinterland, would yeah. be a better way to put it. I think, I think it's really follow the money um, and uh, acknowledging really just how much we have benefited from it. Um, I mean, there's many Irish institutions, there's many um, places in Ireland that need to research um, just how well funded they have been by disreputable income streams. And I think the best way to acknowledge that would be to fund um, studentships or scholarships or fellowships or, you know, way, ways in which we can support and particularly the education, but also possibly the institutions, for example, the National Library of Jamaica, that seems to be barely able to afford to preserve those maps, those extraordinary maps that are um, of Irish landscapes that have kind of ended up in the Caribbean and, 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 and they, you know, they're being eaten, I think, by termites and other kind of, you know, tropical insects. So, so it's trying to ensure that, that we don't just worry about our own sources here, um, but and that we can also fund people to, to do research into this. So I think, for example, that, that our financial institutions, particularly the old ones, should be funding definitely um, research in this area. Um, there, you know, there, there's lots of companies which have a little bit of digging maybe should be tapped to, to maybe, you know, explore this. So, so and, and then, of course, the great, I suppose, Irish global companies as well. I mean, I think it would be very good to, to set a precedent um, in funding research into these income streams. And in a way, I think that's more, it's, it's easy really to focus on the point structures, on the statues and on the individuals. Um, but it's, it's this um, complete web of complicity and, and structural um, knowledge, which once you start looking at the documents, I mean, it's very clear just how many people were involved, how many people knew, how many people benefited. And in a way, you know, that, that money transfer, even though it happened a long time ago, bank, you know, banks and accounts, are, you know, they tend to be very well kept, actually. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, the issue of reparations, it hasn't really been acute in Ireland. But I, I do think it's very hard for, you know, European institutions whom we know have had perfectly, you know, intact 
um, bank accounts for hundreds of years. I mean, I don't understand why that sum is very difficult, you know, just to figure out, you know, a, a reasonable um, compensation, essentially, in the other direction. Um, yeah. And, and when, if Jamaicans want to come here to study their landscape, um, and to understand their landscape through Irish landscape, then we should be facilitating that. And I think that's an a really, really valuable proposal on that, that, you know, there is a sense there of a tangible solution or at least a tangible way of moving things forward. Another suggestion or another um, uh, restructuring, I think, Hussein, was something that you talked about in relation to staffing and in relation to the hiring of, of staff from diverse, from non-white, from non-traditional backgrounds in this respect. And I wonder, Hussein, if I could bring you in at this point just to, to elaborate on that a little bit and whether you think that a restructuring of the, the staffing of our institutions is really where this project should start or where this initiative could find a foothold. So I just wanted uh, to pick up on Finola and, and Kieran's points. Um, I mean, only yesterday, All Souls finally uh, in Oxford uh, was able to remove the name of Codrington, uh, another slave owner from, from the library building. Uh, it also comes, um, I, mean, I haven't got the details in front of me, but it also comes with grants that are being given um, to institutions in the Caribbean, as well as funding for, uh, I think, three research positions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this was a really, really hard won, uh, hard fought battle. Uh, I mean, it, it started right at the time of the Rhodes uh, debate. All Souls is just across the street from where the Rhodes statue is. In many ways, Codrington is a kind of uh, better correlate uh, to Berkeley, I think, than is Rhodes. And, and, um, and, and, and they were aware that this was going to uh, kick off. And there was a huge amount of resistance. And I, so, so I also want to pick up on Donald's uh, point that, um, you know, we don't have here the same kind of tabloid, vicious tabloidy uh, environment that goes after academic staff. I mean, after we wrote the uh, Ethics of Empire uh, letter, people really, uh, I mean, the Daily Mail, we were featured in the Daily Mail, I think three times in that week. Uh, and they really went through people's social media, etc. So there isn't that kind of culture here, which I think is a great, which is, which is great. I mean, it's something that we should be able uh, to use to move the conversation forward. Uh, on staffing, uh, I mean, that's really tricky, right? Um, uh, you often get told that, um, you know, not the right can, you know, we, we want to diversify our staff, but, uh, but, but, but we don't get the applications from from people of black or ethnic minority backgrounds, or we don't get applications from people who speak the right languages. And I, I mean, and to that, I say, I mean, it's, it's a problem of, of, of the way that we frame uh, our job advertisements. I mean, uh, we 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 have to we have to write the kind of advertisements that will want people of diverse ethnic backgrounds to come and and, and teach in, in in our institutions and if we're, and if we're not getting the applicants it's not because the applicants don't exist it's because there's something really wrong about the way that we're framing the jobs that we're advertising yeah. um, so that that's the only practical thing I I, I I've got well as you say I mean these are you know areas that we need to address through policy. Um, and, uh, and it's not simply a question of what we can do within our own disciplines, perhaps. But I do want to come to a question about disciplines because I think all of you have touched on this from some perspective. Uh, it's a question from Claire Connolly um, in UCC, and Claire, of course, uh, has uh, been addressing this subject from various perspectives uh, over the course of the summer 
in the media. Uh, she says, there's clearly work to be done for a discipline such as my own, English literature, whose origins in Ireland are inseparable from the creation of a curriculum to support Irish applications to the Indian civil service. But what about the STEM disciplines, zoology, anatomy, medicine, public health, who will join colleagues in the humanities in this crucial endeavor? Now, Kieran, you, you touched on this point, uh, and Donald, you also had a, a very interesting example um, from Algeria of how this is being addressed in, in STEM disciplines over there. But can I ask maybe the two of you to, to have a think about this? Because this, our perception, my perception, is that this has been an endeavor shouldered largely by historians, a term I'm going to use in the broadest possible sense of that word. Um, but are we perhaps missing work that's being done in STEM subjects in the sciences? Or do we need now to start pushing and, and, and knocking on doors down at the other end of, of Trinity, certainly, and, and looking for some action here? Kieran, I'll maybe come to you and then to you, Donal, um, to, uh, to see if there's an answer on that. Yeah, uh, great. I, I mean, actually, I wouldn't want to undersell or dismiss the work that is being done by schools of medicine. Um, you know, some of the uh, finest work, say, for example, internationally has been done by Mutter Museum. We happen to have a former curator at the Mutter Museum who's currently going through our anatomical collections down the other end of college, uh, which us arts people almost ever go to, um, uh, Evie Newman. And Evie Newman is painstakingly going through uh, the human remains, but also there's sort of uh, various other um, stuff of empire that I spoke about in the presentation. It's partly why I know so much about it, that and the work of Kieran Walsh at Maynooth. Uh, so people are working on it, but they're at the same stage in some respects as, as so many of the arts and humanities disciplines, only really beginning to, to grasp the gravity of it and to recontextualize the objects that they have and have had for, for centuries. So in Trinity's case alone, I would say that work is, is underway down in the School of Medicine, for example. But I think Donald's point about, you know, is this integrated into the teaching of future doctors, future scientists, future engineers? Um, that's a critical question. I mean, I think in history, we have certainly begun to, to teach more and more uh, from this perspective. But, you know, are we, are we trying to integrate it into the undergrad and, and postgraduate curriculum across the board? And that will be a greater piece of work to do and also something that can only be done in, in a piecemeal and incremental fashion. So that's what I'd be interested in seeing. Yeah. Donald, do you want to add anything on the, the disciplinary question? So, so I think one thing we should be very careful about is, is patting our, ourselves on the back in, in the humanities, because uh, we should acknowledge, uh, at least in the case of my own institution, that the students who are studying in the sciences and particularly in medicine are far more diverse. Uh, you know, we have a lot more international students than in the arts and, and they have actually been at the forefront of, of these discussions in, in my institution. And so we can tend to kind of, you know, pat ourselves on the back on that question. And the same is true in, in terms of staffing, uh, that it seems to me that there is actually more diversity uh, in, in scientific staffing, um, or at least it seems more open to people um, from, from outside of, of Europe. So there is that kind of tension between the fact that, that a lot of this is, is quite academics talking about these questions in, in, in the humanities, uh, often teaching uh, largely white, white bodies of students and then being quite critical of, of institutions that, that may actually uh, be grappling with these issues more uh, when it comes to the day-to-day -day interactions. Uh, but I think it's really important that we, we do the work um, that presents this kind of um, project we're talking about a broader reassessment of curriculum in a way that colleagues in, in 
sciences can understand and engage with um, so that it's not just framed in languages that we're comfortable with, um, but, but that draws on those languages that those colleagues understand. And, and like we can look at what colleagues have done in, in universities in Africa and India uh, in that regard. We can take our lead um, from, from colleagues who have been fighting this battle uh, with a lot more at stake than we have had. Um, yeah. I would argue that's what we should do. Exactly. And, and stay there, Donald, because I'm going to come to you just we're moving rapidly uh, towards a conclusion, unfortunately, because there are so many great questions coming in. So I just want to acknowledge a couple of points that people have brought out through the questions. Uh, Jim Livesley, Jim, welcome back. I gather you're joining us again, um, saying that we need a much more theoretically informed reflection on, on the terms that we're using. Um, and I think in the same vein, Barry McRae, Notre Dame's Barry McRae, who uh, is uh, with us in the Longham Hub this year, uh, suggesting that we may be guilty of using US definitions of whiteness. Again, a misuse of concept and language that needs to be thought through in the way that we're, we're discussing these concepts. Those are very elaborate points that have been made and I hope I'm doing justice to them in those tiny summaries. But I want to um, go to uh, a question about language um, in this context from Mary Gallagher. And I think a question a lot of people um, will be raising, and I have lost it, but what she asks is, uh, is this partly related to the inadequacy of our own knowledge of language itself? That because we do not have the languages that are required, indeed the irony is that we had the languages, as Kieran pointed out, back in uh, the 19th century, having lost the languages that are required to really understand the societies and, and uh, the identities that we're dealing with here, um, are we always going to be one step behind where we need to be? Now, Donald, your own work obviously is in language. Um, is this a problem that we're going to have to address in order to move forward in, in, uh, in this discussion? Um, I, I think it is, you know, but I think we're, we're, maybe at, we're maybe at a better starting point than perhaps um, the UK in, in which at least our education system you know, shows some value for languages uh, and there continues to be language learning taking place within the secondary school system. Uh, one thing I think we really need to do and we haven't done a good job of yet is cultivating heritage speakers who come in, come into our classes. So, um, you know, in the UCC French department, we're quite unusual in that we're a majority of colonial, post-colonial scholars, though all white scholars. Uh, and we teach a curriculum that is based on lots of African and Caribbean literature. Um, but we have lots of students increasingly that come in you know and they, they get very excited and make really valuable contributions when you're teaching um, literature from their home countries and there's words in a Lingala for example I had a student from Congo last year that was able to explain something that had passed the rest of us by um, but I don't think that they felt that their language their multilingualism was valued in the same way that it would be if they were speaking French and Italian and I think we really need to, to make an effort within the humanities, within language schools, to recognise that multilingualism is not speaking multiple European languages, it's speaking multiple languages. Uh, and, and that's an, uh, something we should really tackle, I think. Thanks very much, Donald. I, we're, we're going to move to a close. Um, and I, I know there's just wonderful points being made in the chat. So thank you to everyone who's, who's raising um, questions. One of the topics we, we have begun to address, particularly from your own contribution, Fanula, uh, and that it's coming up in, I'd say, at least half of the questions, is to do with money and finance. 
uh, and how much this subject is inextricable from our capitalist structures that have, have underpinned slavery, obviously, imperial expansion, and, uh, and indeed our educational institutions. I don't think, unfortunately, uh, in this discussion, we're going to have time um, to, uh, to address that with any uh, responsibility and depth. Um, but I think that's probably the point at which I'll, I'll draw things to a close by saying that this has been fascinating, but fascinating isn't enough. We need to make this a, a longer conversation. And it's clear to me from the, the, the depth and engagement of the questions coming in uh, that people have a lot more to think about on this topic. So I, I think it'll certainly be the hub's responsibility to, uh, to stage um, a follow-up conversation on this topic in the near future. And I hope that people who didn't have their questions answered uh, in or at least addressed in this session will come back to us for that. So watch this space. Um, the uh, Trinity Long Room Pub will continue with many uh, of our colleagues and partners, including those uh, joining us through the Global Irish Network um, to uh, address these topics. Uh, I want to draw to a close on that note by thanking the Global Irish Network and particularly Mary Hendrickson and Patrick Griffin at Notre Dame, who were really the uh, inspiring force behind uh, the staging of, of this event this evening. Um, I also want to thank, as always, the technical team in the hub, uh, Francesca and Aoife, for helping us put this together and running the show so efficiently. And of course, to our four speakers, who I know have um, well, really moved this question to the forefront of everyone's minds, but also amplified and, and advanced our thinking on it in, in ways that certainly uh, I didn't anticipate, uh, much to reflect on, much to follow up on. But above all, thank you to you, our audience, um, for your interest, for your questions. Please do um, follow up with us on this. The uh, event will be available to listen back on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. Uh, and uh, on the website, you'll also see many other events uh, that you uh, might enjoy joining us for. So keep an eye on what's coming up. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure um, and, and really very interesting indeed to be online with all of you this evening. Um, so all I want to say now is thank you for joining us. Stay well, everyone, and good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.